This is the Reading Instruction Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today's topic, meetings, muting, and muzzling. This is the third in a series that of podcasts that seems to be pointing toward professional behavior or ethics within the field of education and the academy. In episode one, we describe the inevitability and importance of disagreements and conflicting views within the academy, and we examined how they might best be handled. In episode two, we describe the nature of academic discourse, that is, the basic decorum for respectful communication and engagement within the academy and elsewhere. In this podcast, we will continue this discussion by examining academic discourse as it relates to meeting protocol. The protocol described here is based on Robert's Rules of Order, and it's appropriate for any academic setting or others. So, let us take a look at avoiding muting muslings and muslings at meetings. All right? In examining, examining meeting protocol and academic discourse, <clears throat> I need to first dispel two misunderstandings up front. Misunderstanding number one. Respectful academic discourse does not mean that you must always speak using quiet, soothing tones during meetings. Neither does it mean that you must agree with everybody or use verbal elevator music to communicate. Nope. Instead, respectful academic discourse means that the focus is on the ideas presented, not the person presenting them. One can be very confrontational and still maintain respectful academic discourse if one is confronting an idea. As well, it's acceptable to be disagreeable if one is disagreeing with the ideas using reason, research, and research-based theory to make one's case. In fact, a well-functioning academy is dependent on rigorous academic debate. Thus, hence, therefore, it is not only acceptable to disagree and to argue vigorously for one's position, it is an integral part of the process in any academic setting or other. This is what we do in the academy. This is how we get ideas vetted. This is how we evolve our fields. Now, on a personal level, I always consider it a good meeting when I go into it with one position on an issue and come out with another. This means that I was able to hear and process a variety of ideas, that I got feedback on my own ideas, and that decisions were made with thoughtful deliberation after all ideas were considered. And let's take a look at misunderstanding number two. In most academic settings, some form of democratic process is used to conduct meetings and to make decisions, usually Robert's Rules of Order, as described earlier. However, this is a misunderstanding. Democratic process is not simply taking a vote. Just because majority rules were used, you cannot assume that democratic processes was in place, were in place, and that the decision-making was fair. No. 
Democratic process is more than just voting, more than just majority rules. It's a set of procedures used in organizations to avoid both chaos on one end and autocracy on the other. Neither are desired states. It's also a mechanism to enable all voices to be heard and no single voice to dominate during the discussion, the debate, and decision-making of a group. As well, true democratic process puts in place a system of checks and balances to make it less likely that one person or group of people will wield power for their own benefit or push through agenda items based solely on their perspective. Finally, democratic process makes it more difficult to mute or muzzle minority views and dissenting voices. So how should meetings function? Again, Robert's Rules of Order is widely used. It's a widely used set of rules and procedures that govern how organizations operate. Known as parliamentary procedures, this form of democratic process outlines things such as the role of chair, how committees are formed, meeting agendas, as well as how votes should uh, take place. So let's take a look at some of these. The role of the chair. Under Robert's Rules of Order, the role of the chair at a meeting is not to be in charge. It is to facilitate meetings. As such, a chair should not be doing most of the talking. As a matter of fact, effective chairs do very little talking. And in some organizations, the chair does not even vote. This is acceptable under Robert's Rules of Order. Hogging the conversational space is a form of muting and muzzling that makes it difficult for minority views or dissenting voices to be heard. The conversational space is owned by all meeting participants. It is not the property of the chair. Thus, the conversational footprint of a chair should be as small as possible during meetings. Let's look at disseminating information. The prime purpose of a meeting is not to inform or be informed. It is to deliberate, discuss, and decide. As such, it's not appropriate for the chair to confiscate large chunks of conversational space in a meeting to disseminate information. This is another example of muting and muzzling the voices of meeting participants. Paper and email have both been found to be very effective for information dissemination. Meeting time should not be used for this purpose. As well, relevant information provided before the meeting enables meeting participants to fully process it and to be well informed during discussion and deliberation. Orderly communication. One of the chair's primary functions at a meeting is to recognize people who wish to speak. The chair is responsible for making sure that all voices are heard and no single voice dominates. The conversational space should not be dominated by those who A. Speak the loudest B. Jump into conversational gaps the fastest or C. Are most oblivious to the nonverbal hints of others. 
Now, smaller groups sometimes choose to suspend recognition functions by the chair and allow for more conversational type of discussions. However, the onus is still on the chair to remind participants about respectful meeting protocol and the importance of allowing all voices into the conversation. <clears throat> when the conversational space is not regulated or maintained, voices become muted or muzzled during meetings. And agendas. Meeting agendas are a list of items to be discussed along with the objective for each item and relevant information. Now, a well-planned meeting agenda allows for purposeful and effective meetings. A desired state is for meeting participants to be fully informed decision makers. Thus, agendas should contain details sufficient to fully inform. They should also be sent out at least one day ahead of the scheduled meeting so participants are able to review the information and seek out additional information if needed. <clears throat> An ineffective and unethical use of the agenda is to provide, provide only a very cryptic list of meeting topics and to send it out the day of the meeting. This is sometimes done to make it less likely that participants will be fully prepared for discussion, debate, and decision-making. It's also an example of how the conversational space can be controlled and dissenting voices and minority views be muzzled or muted. And the last area of <clears throat> effective meetings we'll look at is the committee. Committees are formed by and subordinate to the larger group. Committees have a specific role, which is to prepare something for the larger group to consider. Thus, a committee, by definition, is a relatively small group. <clears throat> it should not contain more than 50% of the original group. In this case, it would not be a committee at all. Rather, it would be a whole group meeting with a few people missing. And since the majority already developed the product or made the recommendation, it's very unlikely that this will be overturned once the product is considered in the whole group meeting. This means as well that the minority who have had no input in the process or during the process will have no input during the process used to create the product. Let me give you an example of this. On a university campus, there was a department with 10 members. They decided to form a committee to design a new program. <clears throat> For various reasons, eight of the 10 department members were on the committee. Dissenting voices were excluded. After spending time designing the new program, the committee brought it back to the department for consideration. Since members could vote on the new program, it was declared that democratic process was used. However, consider this. Since 80% of the faculty group were involved in designing the new program, how likely would it be that it would be rejected or revised at the time of the vote? As well, how likely was it that alternative views were considered during the design of the new program? As stated previously, just because a majority rules vote was used, you cannot assume that democratic processes were used or that the decision-making was fair. 
This is an example of bullying by majority and will be part uh, of our next podcast. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host as always, Dr. Andy Johnson.